Thank you so much, Laurel. As always, beautifully read, beautifully read. I just love sitting there hearing it, hearing it. Let's pray together. Lord, we are here uh, lifting up our heart and our voices to you. And even though we are people of little power, really, and, uh, and pretty much few resources, and we have even less understanding of the mystery, but if we could not speak to you, we would have no hope. It would surely be lost. You put the power of your hand into ours. It is your hand that holds the threads of our lives. And because of that, I am not afraid. It is your own spirit that stirs our spirit. And the things that we desire that we cannot really obtain ourselves, but the things that you desire for us, we can easily obtain. We just have to ask. And so, Father, we are asking. We're asking that you take uh, this day's life and uh, direct us, that our, our energies be uh, channeled into your will, that you direct us into serving you, that our thoughts will become your thoughts and they will become directed to you, that our eyes will see what you see and, and that our feet will will run to serve you and to serve others and out of our mouth will come words of encouragement and not um, danger and not weapons. Father, we commit ourselves to you to, as we are instruments to bring peace and mercy to those around us. And so, Father, with that in, we commit ourselves to you this morning and um, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to pray together, to hear your word, and to sing praises to you. And we pray that they are worthy of who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I mentioned earlier, we are uh, kind of shifting a little bit, but staying in Isaiah, that there is no other. That is our theme for Advent 2021. Um, I don't know how many of you have actually been to the Empire State Building but uh, we've been to New York a couple of times because we have some really good friends who live there. Uh, they're church planning in New York City. And uh, the first time we went, you know, we were, I don't know, do we want to go see another tall building, you know? But it's so iconic. I mean, it's just, it's just part of history. I mean, just the fact I started, I Googled how many movies center around the Empire State Building. And you would be surprised how many movies, TV shows use this iconic building to uh, make their story. Um, there we go. Get it? I just didn't turn the... There we go. Uh, King Kong, of course. Everyone knows this picture. This is, a, this is famous. Uh, an Affair to Remember. I actually have never seen that with Cary Grant. I think Sue's probably seen it two or three times, but I've never seen it. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. That references Affair to Remember. They finally meet together in the Empire State Building. It's really one of my favorite rom-coms. Uh, Elf in the Empire State Building, uh, Independence Day in Empire State Building, and Superman saves the Empire State Building, okay? Uh, and you, it's really one of those iconic buildings that just, you know, everyone is drawn to when you go to New York City, and you go, and we weren't sure we wanted to go up to see the top, to go to the height of the, of the, of the tower, and uh, then we walked into the entrance, and the entrance itself is breathtaking. You walk in and you go, this is someplace special. 
and it certainly is. It certainly is special when you walk in there and you go, we've got to go up to the top. You, you can't come to New York City and not go to, to the um, Empire State Building. That's kind of the way I feel about Isaiah 40 through 55. It is this long poem, and it is this iconic piece of scripture, this iconic passage that really should draw us in. And uh, you cannot read the Gospels without reading Isaiah 40 through 55. And uh, in fact, I forgot who coined the term, but one of the scholars back in the day said that uh, Isaiah 40 to 55 is the fifth gospel. It is incredible. Uh, N.T. Wright says that if they were, if we didn't have a copy of these, these chapters of Isaiah and some archaeologist discovered it, it would be the find of the century. Uh, they would just, it would be all over the news. It would just be incredible. It would just be one of the most beautiful pieces of ancient literature ever uncovered. And, uh, but we have it right here in English or Spanish or whatever language you want to read, and we just kind of, you know, you don't, you don't realize just how special it is. But when you come to Isaiah, when you come to the scriptures, it's like coming to the Empire State Building. You know, you have to, you have to understand it, just look in there and see it. It is, a, it is a long poem, but it's just beautifully, beautifully made. Most of us have some sort of familiarity with the poem. Uh, most of us are familiar with the servant songs, of talking about the servant of Yahweh. Uh, others, other people know it from uh, the, the movie, uh, the movie um, Chariots of Fire, you know, but those who, he quotes it all the time, but those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength, they will soar on their wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. And that was a beautiful thing, you know, in the Chariots of Fire, it was just a very moving section of the movie, just incredible, incredibly uh, uh, poignant and, and focused, but when you put it in the context of the whole poem, it just becomes even incre more incredible. You understand exactly what all this is talking about. It is a beautiful poem. It's basically, I'm just, just again to give you an idea of the bird's eye view of the big picture. We'll just look at the, the big picture here of the whole poem. It basically is telling us uh, basically four things. One thing it's saying, it's telling Judah that are in exile, your exile is not permanent. It will be over. Now, there's some discussion I mentioned last week about whether, um, or maybe the first time, first section is Isaiah, of whether this is a different author talking about Judah in exile later, or is this a continuation one of Isaiah's prophecy? My opinion doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't really affect the meaning of the section. But this picture, this big picture, is that exile is not permanent, and that it is uh, that God is saying, you know, it's okay. This is not going to last forever. This is not going to last because when a, when a country is taken away in exile or in captivity, it, the, the feeling is that their God is greater than my God. And Yahweh is saying that's not true. These gods are weak, they are feeble, and there will be one day where I will defeat those gods, I will defeat those idols, I will defeat the king of Babylon, I will defeat the princes. It will be over. God is saying in Isaiah 40 through 55, he's saying, I've got this. Don't sweat it. It is, it will not last forever, okay? That's, he's saying, this is, this is, this is, this is temporary. It is not permanent. And he's saying, I know those gods well. I know those idols. And he's also saying, though, I also know your failures. But don't be too concerned. It's not permanent. And the other thing, the second thing he's saying, I'm going to mention just four things here. The second thing he's saying is that that Yahweh is the one real true God. 
that there is no other, that he is the true God. There is no God. He said all those idols, he kind of laughs at them. He says all those idols are just made by people. And sooner or later, they're going to be ready for the trash heap. They're not real. They have no power. There is only one God. And he says, my word will come to fruition. My word will carry on. That, that word, is the, it seems to be the link from chapter 40 all the way to chapter 5. That is kind of the thing that holds it together. So he says, the exile will not be, will not be permanent. And he says, there's only one true God. And the third thing says, God is saying, I have not given up. I have not given up on my creation, and I have not given up on the covenant. Those things are still in my heart. I have not given up on those things. And he says, and it brings all this focus in, in the servant that we'll see in, in, in Isaiah 53. And he says, this is good news that I have not given up. This is good news not only for Israel and Judah. This is good news for the world. That because Israel will be, there will be a new creation, there will be a new covenant. And if we, when we remove Israel from, from its, from its uh, idolatry and its exile, that unleashes the promise. He has not given up on it. He has not given up on the, new, on the creation. He says, it, everybody else, you may be, be lacking hope, but he says, this is, this is what God has decided. This is what God's word will do. I have not given up. This is what all the prophets depend on. When you look at Ezekiel, Malachi, Zechariah, those prophets that, that talk about God's return and God's new covenant and God's new creation, it's all based on Isaiah 40 to 55. This one came first, and everything else kind of spins off from that. This is a cornerstone of this. And then finally, he says, this is, a, this is a new covenant and a new creation. I am going to bring about renewal. I am going to bring about rescue. This will be a new covenant based on the forgiveness of sins. And this is the same thing. This is, this is uh, no confusion about the power here. It's all based on the forgiveness of sins. And, in, <clears throat> and when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we, we kind of have this idea that it's, that it's isolated. Well, for Isaiah, it is, it is worldly. It is global. And it is almost synonymous with returning from the exile. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because he talks about that in his first chapter or chapter 40, this first section of the poem. So he's saying that the exile is not permanent. There is only one true God. Yahweh is the true God. I have not given up on the creation. I have not given up on the covenant. In fact, I'm going to make a new covenant and inaugurate a new creation. That's what this whole poem is all about. And, and chapter 40 is the entranceway, which brings me back to the, the, the uh, Empire State Building. This is like that entranceway where you walk in and you go, okay, I'm in something really special here. And we read those, those or listen to those 11 verses that, that Laurel read. You just walk in and go, okay, these 11 verses, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be beautiful. This is really iconic. And he starts off with this double, this double comfort. This double comfort, comfort, comfort. And when something is repeated in Hebrew, you know it's important. And when it's repeated three times, like holy, 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 you know it's super important. But he repeats it twice. Comfort, comfort, my people. Nachmu, nachmu, ami. That's what the word says in Hebrew. Nachmu, nachmu, ami. Comfort, my people. This sets the, the tone for the whole, the whole poem. is about comforting his people. 
And he stresses that it's, this, it's, he says, my people, that this covenant is still intact. You are my people. That has never, never changed. He says, you may not want, you may not want me to be your God, but you are still my people. And he says, speak tenderly to them. And, and again, literally, that he says, speak to their hearts. Speak to their hearts. Speak tenderly to them. He wants to woo them like a lover woos a, woos a young woman to try to win her love back. Hosea uses the same phrase. He says, therefore, I will now allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. It's like, he, you know, it's like the woman has lost her first love, has lost her, her love for him. And so he wants to take her back to where they first met. And they go back to where they first met in the wilderness out when they, he, he left them out of Egypt. And he says, I will speak to your heart. I will woo you. I will speak tenderly to you. This is my people. And he goes on to say, to talk about, he goes on to say that this, this problem must be dealt with. And, this, and the problem is the sin. The problem is the idolatry that has caused them to sin. And that happens to us too. Whenever we get usually almost every sin, I would almost say 100% of the sin that we, we fall into is because of an idolatrous situation. Somehow. Somehow God has been replaced. And he says we have to fix this. The problem has to be dealt with. Forgiveness. And he goes on, to, and this is, this is, again, he's giving clues to what he's going to look at later on in the poem. And we see the conclusion of that in Isaiah 53. And he says, comfort comes when you are forgiven. It will come when you are forgiven. And what's, what's interesting here is that it appears that the, the, um, the forgiveness is, happens elsewhere. That he says that, that um, I have proclaimed that her sin has been paid for. She has received for the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's almost as if it's been paid for by somebody else out there somewhere. And then, of course, we get to Isaiah 53 and we find out how that happened. But here in the first chapter, he's just kind of given us these clues, given us these teasers of what's coming, that it will be forgiven. And when we talk about this forgiveness, like I mentioned, we, we tend to make it an isolated thing. It's my sins and my forgiven, and it certainly is that. It certainly is that. But it is also global it is also national in this case it is a return from the exile and you can almost say in the old testament that returning and rescuing from exile is the same thing as forgiveness it's almost synonymous and really you look in the new testament and you will find it if you're looking for it you'll see it in the new testament as well and you see it all the way up to the crucifixion where jesus comes back from the ultimate exile to launch the new creation and establish the new covenant but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But that's what we have to look forward to, this forgiveness. And when Israel returns, when Israel is rescued from the exile, it's like unlocking the promises for the world. It's like now these things can go forward. And that's why it's so important. The covenant still stands, and he is unlocking, unlocking the presence, unlocking the promise when they return from exile. And this is how he is going to carry forward his plan. This is how he's going to carry forward his purpose to rescue humanity. Unlocking the exile, and it unlocks the promise for others. In verses 3 through 11, we finally get to the message of what he's supposed to say. 
And it begins when, in verses 3 through 5. I'm going to divide it up into three sections here. You kind of have uh, uh, the coming of Yahweh. In verses 3 through 5, he says, Yahweh is coming. Roll out the red carpet. Prepare a way for him. Remove the obstacles. Of course, we know this is associated with John the Baptist, but it applies to Israel. It applies to us. It applies to Zion, Jerusalem, that we roll out the red carpet because Yahweh is coming. We remove the obstacles. We make things flat, the things that are rocky. Not because you can't get over it, but because we don't want to put obstacles in the way from anybody else. So let me exhort us and let it encourage us to not put obstacles where there's not needed. The message is clear. Let's make the way smooth. Let's pave the way for other people to see his glory. Make, make it ready for him. Prepare the way, flatten it out, remove the obstacles. Again, that's what Malachi says, that's what Zechariah says, and that's what Ezekiel says. That Yahweh is coming. Roll out the red carpet. And Yahweh is coming, he says, and the word to see his glory, for the Lord will be revealed. And I really think this is super important because remember that we're. The glory was seen before in Exodus. Moses couldn't even look at it. And now with this new covenant, not only can Moses look at it, but he says he wants everybody to see it. He says, I want it to shout it out from Zion and that all the neighboring cities and the whole world to see his glory. And you can fit in glory by his majesty. You can, you can, you can fit it in with, with his love, his mercy, his grace. All those things we need to make visible for everyone to see. That Jesus Christ, when we as Christians, we claim Jesus Christ, that is the manifestation of his glory. That's what we will see. And then you go into verse 6 through 8. That he is coming, the first section, he is coming back for sure. Yahweh is coming, roll out the red carpet. And then verses 6 through 8, he says, Yahweh is coming back. His word confirms it. His word promises. His word guarantees it. That the victory is guaranteed. And he goes on to say, he says, um, the voice says, cry out. And Isaiah says, well, what, what am I supposed to cry? What am I supposed to say? And then he says, all men are like grass, for their glory is like the flower of the field. Why has he thrown that in there? I think because he's saying this, he says, Yahweh is coming back. Don't look to human beings to do it. They are not going to be able to pull this off by themselves. They are like grass that withers. And that is really a poignant, uh, important metaphor picture in Middle East because grass will come up and spring up in the spring with some rain, but then as soon as the hot winds come through, it blows away. And everything fades. And he's saying, that's what people are like. So don't look to them to do this. Don't depend on human beings to pull this off because they will not be able to do it. What will do it is my word. The thing that comes out of my mouth, he says in, in, in verse 3. I, what comes out of my mouth will accomplish it. Now, it's too easy to say when we see word of God to think Bible. That it's the scriptures. And by far, this is the way that the church Christians know the word of God is through the scriptures. But here, I think we're talking about something wilder, something that's, that we can't control, 
something that actually does something. And this is, this is a common theme in, in the Old Testament. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 147, he sends out his commands to the earth. His words run swiftly. And then we get into the final chapter of this poem, in chapter 55. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I have purposed and succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. It's something that actually does something, something that actually works and goes through from his mouth. And when we read John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, that is an obvious reference to Genesis 1. But if you go on, I think John is, is basing a lot of his discussion on Isaiah 40 to 55. That his Word is actually doing something, and Jesus is the Word who is going out into the world to accomplish his purposes. It's wilder, it's out of control, it's away from our control but it will do what he accomplishes. It is a powerful word of the new creation. And then the last section is how is he going to come? Yahweh is coming. Roll out the red carpet. Yahweh is coming. His word guarantees it. And how is he coming? Yahweh is coming in strength and tenderness. And these last verses are just so, so incredible. Verses 10 through 11. Let me read them again. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. So see, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. And he tends the flock like a shepherd, and he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those who have young. You get this really contrasting picture of, this, of, of Yahweh coming. You know, the first, the first description is something we kind of expect. He's coming, he says, a strong arm of God will rule. And it kind of reminds me of that emoji that some people send, you know, the, the flexing arm and stuff. And we kind of say, hey, good job, well done, do, you know, you did, did good. Well, that's kind of the idea here. His, his arm is strong. Good job, he does it. It's, it's strong. He's the warrior king. And then we have this other contrast. Oh, but he's a shepherd who holds lambs close to his heart. And he feeds them. And he leads those with baby lambs. And so we have this really weird kind of contrasting picture here. And where do we see it again? In chapter 53 with the servant. The most powerful thing he can do is, it, it, he can do is this despised and rejected servant who comes in power, like we saw in Exodus and we see in the Psalms, and yet he does this incredibly humble thing of giving his life for others. You have this double picture, a double portrait of Yahweh coming. And a couple of things I want to mention here about this, that, that we have, there's a trend these days in the church to see Jesus as this militant warrior. And we are, we are, Fighting with violence for, for Jesus. You know, we've got to clean these battles and got to win these battles. And I just heard an interview with a history professor at Calvin College. And, uh, and she says, says, I believe, she's a solid evangelical, and she says, I believe evangelicalism will not survive unless it has an enemy to fight. 
It cannot survive unless we have an enemy. It says, and that enemy can be Cold War, you know, it could be Islam, whatever, but we need an enemy to fight, it seems. And he does come with strength, and he does come with power. And if you look at it, this is the perfect description of Jesus. The perfect description. He comes and he, he casts out demons. He comes and he makes the wind and the waves calm. He comes and he confronts the hypocrisy and the judgmentalism of the religious, the religious institutions, the religious establishment. He comes and he confronts the military might of Rome and stands up to them. And then the other side, he comes and raises a little girl from the dead. He comes and a, and a bleeding woman touches his garment and is healed. He comes and makes blind people see. He comes and he, and he, and he receives sinners and, and tax collectors, crooks and prostitutes and forgives them. He stops a group of people from committing murder because a woman committed adultery. You see these both sides. He calls himself the good shepherd. And so, yes, we have this strength, but we also have this shepherd. We have this savior, this servant, who takes lambs to his heart. And he feeds them, and he cares for them. And I think if there's anything that unites all human beings together... It's our exile, that we are all in exile, that we are all lacking something. And we all think that if we can fix the world, we can find it, or if we can go get something from the world, we can find it, that somehow that will happen. But none of us are exempt. It's we, I, you, me, none of us are exempt from this. I think this is what makes us humanity, and this exile reaches into our core. It runs through our bones. And we need a warrior, and we need a shepherd. We need someone to protect us, provide for us, feed us, care for us, lead us. And that's what a shepherd does. He's able to run after an errant sheep and bring it back as many times as it takes. He is able to take care of an individual sheep and the whole flock at the same time. How, I don't know, but he does it. And he wants to lead us. And, he may, and at the beginning, it may not be a place where we really want to go. But it will be good. It will be fulfillment of his promises. It will be what he has for us. He is a warrior. He is strong. And he is also tender. And he is able to put those together. So we read this opening chapter, these opening verses of this wonderful poem, this entranceway into this wonderful poem, and it is a poem of basically of hope. That you read this, if you were a Jew reading this in Babylon or hearing these words, you would be surprised by hope. And this is what it does for me, it's surprised by hope. And if, if I could say two things that this assures us from, we are assured of two things. One is the present tense goodness of God that he is good right now in the present tense. He is good for us. He pursues us. He forgives us with his tenderness. He takes us to him. He guides us. He cares for us and feeds us and rescues us. 
and we have the future tense of the faithfulness of God. That His promise will be fulfilled. His word will accomplish what He says it will do. We have the future tense faithfulness of God. That we do not have to depend on a human being to do this. It is His goodness that He will preserve us in His goodness. We don't need to depend on humans for this kind of victory. We depend on Him. We don't need to depend on anyone else to get the job done because He will do it. And we get this glimpse of His glory. And our job is to point other people to it. Say, this is, this is what God does. This is what God does when He comes to visit. He does this. This is His glory. We point people to it, not obscure the vision, not obscure it. We cannot serve two masters. We serve Jesus and Jesus alone. We follow him and him alone. He's the one who will accomplish this. Yahweh is coming and all celebration and all creation will celebrate. Yahweh is coming and all creation will celebrate. He has not given up on creation. He has not given up on the, on the covenant that either God preserves us or he doesn't. He is either trustworthy or we have no hope. He will either rescue us from our exile or we will remain imprisoned. That's our options. Those two options are it. We will remain imprisoned by our own rules, our own addictions. I just got disturbing news from two women that I grew up with, went to school with. One passed away due to alcoholism, and the other, who is my age, moved back in with her folks because of alcoholism. Raised in a Christian home, we can't control that. We can't magically protect our kids or our friends, or our neighbors. We can't, it doesn't magically happen. But we can point people to glimpse the glory of the Savior. We can tell him who can, who, he, who can rescue you from your exile. We can do that. He desires to rescue us. We are hopeless and helpless people. And we're really not able to do anything on our own behalf as far as this exile is concerned. We need a, a rescuer. But God, with his word, will do it. He has promised. He has told us, and he has shown us. Um, Frederick Buechner says, all those years of waiting until finally the holy dream becomes a holy face. God meets those needs, rescues us from that exile in what we think may be the worst possible way because what he offers us is just himself. And maybe we're not that excited about it at first. But then we begin to experience the deliverance. And he brings us back to himself. And this is how the whole thing moves forward. This is how all God's purpose moves forward. For the last 2,000 years, this is how it moves forward of people being rescued and pointing people to the door and taking their hand and putting it on the doorknob so that they can open the door and see and get rescued from the exile. He has not given up on creation. He has not given up on the covenant. He will not leave us or forsake us.
and that work is grounded in the work of Christ himself. He has accomplished it for us, and he continues to abide with us. What I'd like to do at close is, um, is do a little um, Lexio Divina, and uh, we haven't done that in for a while, so we're going to spend some time in some silence, maybe 15 seconds at a time, no more. That can get awkward, I understand. But we are going to spend some time in silence, and I'm just going to lead us through this. And it's going to be just a simple prayer. I will pray it each time. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Uh, so if we celebrate the, the coming of Jesus, we'll be praying through this story, this, this perspective of Isaiah's prophecy each of the four Sundays in Advent. Um, and uh, December, I said, could be pretty uh, stressful, but hopefully we can find rest here. So let's pray. I'll lead you through, through a prayer, through different things to be praying for, and then we'll have a few minutes of silence and we'll just continue on. And, um, and I'll ask you guys, to, I'll come on up in a few minutes. Turning my attention now to focus on my own heart, I may become aware of sinful thoughts, words, or deeds in my life, and I simply acknowledge them now before you, Lord, and I pray for my own life. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And now I turn my thoughts to think of someone who needs Christ's love today. I name them before you and pray for them. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Next, I think of my own church family and the services and the meetings, meetings that plan this Christmas season, whether they are in person or online. Again, I pray for us. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Finally, I think of a place in the world right now that desperately needs your comfort. I pray for that place. I pray for that situation. I pray for those people. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Yes, come on up. Way back in the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux, who uh, founded the Cistercian monks, he said Jesus comes in three ways. 
He comes in Bethlehem when he was born. He, uh, we pray for him to return. And he comes born in us on a daily basis. So let me close in prayer, and then we'll have you guys close us in song. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to save us. Maranatha, may Jesus be born among us this Christmas. Thank you, Jesus, that you come before us and you're coming again in glory. Maranatha, we long for your return and make all things new. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling our lives. Maranatha, may the Lord Jesus Christ be born again in us today. Amen.